Section 31 of Volume 1A of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Richardson. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1A, Section 31. Chapter 6, Part 1, Henry I, 1100. After the adventures in the Holy War were assembled on the banks of the Bosphorus, opposite to Constantinople, they proceeded on their enterprise, but immediately experienced those difficulties which their zeal had hitherto concealed from them, and for which, even if they had foreseen them, it would have been almost impossible to provide a remedy. The Greek emperor, Elix Cominus, who had applied to the Western Christians for succor against the Turks, entertained hopes, and those but feeble ones, of obtaining such a moderate supply as, acting under his command, might enable him to repulse the enemy. But he was extremely astonished to see his dominions overwhelmed on a sudden by such an inundation of licentious barbarians who though they pretended friendship despised his subjects as unwarlike and detested them as heretical by all the arts of policy in which he excelled he endeavored to divert the torrent but while he employed professions caresses civilities and seeming services toward the leaders of the crusade he secretly regarded those imperious allies as more dangerous than the open enemies by whom his empire had been formally invaded. Having effected that difficult point of disembarking them safely in Asia, he entered into a private correspondence with Soliman, emperor of the Turks, and practiced every insidious art which his genius his power, or his situation enabled him to employ for disappointing the enterprise and discouraging the Latins from making thenceforward any such prodigious migrations. His dangerous policy was seconded by the disorders inseparable from so vast a multitude who were not united under one head and were conducted by leaders of the most independent intractable spirit, unacquainted with military discipline, and determined enemies to civil authority and submission. The scarcity of provisions, the excess of fatigue, the influence of unknown climates, joined to the want of concert in their operations, and to the sword of a warlike enemy, destroyed the adventurers by thousands, 
and would have abated the ardor of men impelled to war by less powerful motives their zeal however their bravery and their irresistible force still carried them forward and continually advanced them to the great end of their enterprise after an obstinate siege they took nisi the seat of the turkish empire they defeated soliman in two great battles they made themselves masters of antioch and entirely broke the force of the turks who had so long retained those countries in subjection the soldan of egypt whose alliance they had hitherto courted recovered on the fall of the turkish power his former authority in jerusalem and he informed them by his ambassadors that if they came disarmed to that city they might now perform their religious vows and that all christian pilgrims who should thenceforth visit the holy sepulchre might expect the same good treatment which they had ever received from his predecessors the offer was rejected the soldan was required to yield up the city to the christians and on refusal the champions of the cross advanced to the siege of jerusalem which they regarded as the consummation of their labors by the detachments which they had made and the disasters which they had undergone they were diminished to the number of twenty thousand foot and fifteen hundred horse but these were still formidable from their valor their experience and the obedience which from past calamities they had learned to pay to their leaders after a siege of five weeks they took jerusalem by assault and impelled by a mixture of military and religious rage they put the numerous garrison and inhabitants to the sword without distinction neither arms defended the valiant nor submission the timorous no age or sex was spared infants on the breast were pierced by the same blow with their mothers who implored for mercy even a multitude to the number of ten thousand persons who had surrendered themselves prisoners and were promised quarter were butchered in cold blood by those ferocious conquerors the streets of jerusalem were covered with dead bodies and the triumphant warriors after every enemy was subdued and slaughtered immediately turned themselves with the sentiments of humiliation and contrition towards the holy sepulchre they threw aside their arms still streaming with blood they advanced with reclined bodies and naked feet and heads to that sacred monument they sung anthems to their savior who had purchased their salvation by his death and agony and their devotion enlivened by the presence of the place where he had suffered so overcame their fury that they dissolved in tears and bore the appearance of every soft and tender sentiment so inconsistent is human nature with itself and so easily does the most effeminate superstition ally both with the most heroic courage and with the fiercest barbarity 
This great event happened on the 5th of July, in the last year of the 11th century. The Christian princes and nobles, after choosing Godfrey of Bouillon, king of Jerusalem, began to settle themselves in their conquests. While some of them returned to Europe, in order to enjoy at home that glory which their valor had acquired them in this popular and meritorious enterprise. Among these was Robert, Duke of Normandy, who, as he had relinquished the greatest dominions of any prince that attended the crusade, had all along distinguished himself by the most intrepid courage, as well as by that affable disposition and unbounded generosity which gain the hearts of soldiers and qualify a prince to shine in a military life in passing through italy he became acquainted with sibylla daughter of the count of conversina a young lady of great beauty and merit whom he espoused indulging himself in this new passion as well as fond of enjoying ease and pleasure after the fatigues of so many rough campaigns he lingered a twelfth month in that delicious climate and though his friends in the north looked every moment for his arrival none of them knew when they could with certainty expect it by this delay he lost the kingdom of england which the great fame he had acquired during the crusades as well as his undoubted title both by birth and by the preceding agreement with his deceased brother would had he been present have infallibly secured to him prince henry was hunting with rufus in the new forest when intelligence of that monarch's death was brought him and being sensible to the advantage attending the conjecture he hurried to winchester in order to secure the royal treasure which he knew to be a necessary implement for facilitating his designs on the crown. He had scarcely reached the place when William de Bretilleul, keeper of the treasure, arrived and opposed himself to Henry's pretensions. This nobleman, who had been engaged in the same party of hunting, had no sooner heard of his master's death than he hastened to take care of his charge and he told the prince that this treasure, as well as the crown, belonged to his elder brother, who was now his sovereign, and that he himself, for his part, was determined, in spite of all other pretensions, to maintain his allegiance to him. But Henry, drawing his sword, threatened him with instant death if he dared to disobey him, and as others of the late king's retinue who came every moment to winchester joined the prince's party Bretilleu was obliged to withdraw his opposition and to acquiesce in this violence henry without losing a moment hastened with the money to london and having assembled some noblemen and prelates whom his address or abilities or presence gained to his side he was suddenly elected, or rather saluted, king, and immediately proceeded to the exercise of royal authority. In less than three days after his brother's death, the ceremony of his coronation was performed by Maurice, Bishop of London, who was persuaded to officiate on that occasion, 
and thus by his courage and celerity he intruded himself into the vacant throne no one had sufficient spirit or sense of duty to appear in defense of the absent prince all men were seduced or intimidated present possession supplied the apparent defects in henry's title which was indeed founded on a plain usurpation and the barons as well as the people acquiesced in a claim which though it could neither be justified nor comprehended could now they found be opposed through the perils alone of civil war and rebellion but as henry foresaw that a crown usurped against all rules of justice would sit unsteady on his head he resolved by fair professions at least to gain the affections of all his subjects besides taking the usual coronation oath to maintain the laws and execute justice he passed a charter which was calculated to remedy many of the grievous oppressions which had been complained of during the reigns of his father and brother he there promised that at the death of any bishop or abbot he never would seize the revenues of the see or abbey during the vacancy but would leave the whole to be reaped by the successor and that he would never let to form any ecclesiastical benefice nor dispose of it for money after this concession to the church whose favor was of so great importance he proceeded to enumerate the civil grievances which he proposed to redress he promised that upon the death of any earl baron or military tenant his heir should be admitted to the possession of his estate on paying a just and lawful relief without being exposed to such violent exactions as had been usual during the late reigns he remitted the wardship of minors and allowed guardians to be appointed who should be answerable for the trust. He promised not to dispose of any heiress in marriage, but by the advice of all the barons, and if any baron intended to give his daughter, sister, or niece, or kinswoman, in marriage, it should only be necessary for him to consult the king, who promised to take no money for his consent, nor ever to refuse permission unless the person to whom it was proposed to marry her should happen to be his enemy he granted his barons and military tenants the power of bequeathing by will their money or personal estates and if they neglected to make a will he promised that the heirs should succeed to them he renounced the right of imposing moneyage and of levying taxes at pleasure on the farms which the barons retained in their own hands. He made some general professions of moderating fines. He offered a pardon for all offenses, and he remitted all debts due to the crown. He required that the vassals of the barons should enjoy the same privileges which he granted to his own barons and he promised a general confirmation 
and observance of the laws of King Edward. This is the substance of the chief articles contained in that famous charter. To give greater authenticity to these concessions, Henry lodged a copy of his charter in some abbey of each county, as if desirous that they should be exposed to the view of all his subjects, and remain a perpetual rule for the limitation and direction of his government. Yet it is certain that, after the present purpose was served, he never once thought during his reign of observing one single article of it and the whole fell so much into neglect and oblivion that in the following century, when the barons who had heard an obscure tradition of it desired to make it the model of the great charter which they exacted from King John, they could with difficulty find a copy of it in the kingdom. But as to the grievance here meant to be redressed, they were still continued in their full extent, and the royal authority in all whose particulars lay under no manner of restriction, reliefs of heirs, so capital in article, were never effectually fixed till the time of the Magna Carta, and it is evident that the general promise here given of accepting a just and lawful relief ought to have been reduced to more precision in order to give security to the subject. The oppression of wardship in marriage was perpetuated even till the reign of Charles the Second, and it appears from Glanville, the famous justiciary of Henry the Second, that in his time, where any man died intestate, an accident which must have been very frequent when the art of writing was so little known, the king, or the lord of the fife, pretended to seize all the movables, and to exclude every heir, even the children of the deceased, a sure mark of a tyrannical and arbitrary government. The Normans, indeed, who domineered in England, were during this age so licentious a people that they may be pronounced incapable of any true or regular liberty, which requires such improvement in knowledge and morals as can only be the result of reflection and experience, and must grow to perfection during several ages of settled and established government. A people so insensible to the right of their sovereign as to disjoint without necessity the hereditary succession and permit a younger brother to intrude himself into the place of the elder, whom they esteemed and who was guilty of no crime but being absent, could not expect that. What is called a relief in the conqueror's laws preserved by engulf seems to have been the heriot, since reliefs as well as the other burdens of the feudal law were unknown in the age of the confessor whose laws these originally were. This practice was contrary to the laws of King Edward, ratified by the conqueror, as we learn from Engulf, page 91. But laws had at that time very little influence power and violence 
governed everything. Prince would pay any greater regard to their privileges, or allow his engagements to fetter his power, and debar him from any considerable interest or convenience. They had indeed arms in their lands, which prevented the establishment of a total despotism, and left their posterity sufficient power, whenever they should attain a sufficient degree of reason to assume true liberty. But their turbulent disposition frequently prompted them to make such use of their arms, that they were more fitted to obstruct the execution of justice than to stop the career of violence and oppression. The prince, finding that greater opposition was often made to him when he enforced the laws than when he violated them, was apt to render his own will and pleasure the sole rule of government, and on every emergency to consider more the power of the persons whom he might offend than the rights of those whom he might injure. The very form of this charter of Henry proves that the Norman barons, for they, rather than the people of England, are chiefly concerned in it, were totally ignorant of the nature of limited monarchy, and were ill-qualified to conduct, in conjunction with their sovereign, the machine of government. It is an act of his sole power, is the result of his free grace, contains some articles which bind others as well as himself, and is therefore unfit to be the deed of any one who possesses not the whole legislative power, and who may not at pleasure revoke all his concessions. Henry, further to increase his popularity, degraded and committed to prison Ralph Flambard, Bishop of Durham, who had been the chief instrument of oppression under his brother. But this act was followed by another, which was a direct violation of his own charter, and was a bad prognostic of his sincere intentions to observe it. He kept the see of Durham vacant for five years, and during that time retained possession of all its revenues. Sensible of the great authority which Anselm had acquired by his character of piety, and by the persecutions which he had undergone from William, he sent repeated messages to him at Lyons, where he resided, and invited him to return and take possession of his dignities. On the arrival of the prelate, he proposed to him the renewal of that homage which he had done his brother, and which had never been refused by any English bishop. But Anselm had acquired other sentiments by his journey to Rome, and gave the king an absolute refusal. He objected the decrees of the council of Bari, at which he himself had assisted, and he declared that, so far as from doing homage to his spiritual dignity, he would not so much as communicate with any ecclesiastic who paid that submission, or who accepted of investitures from laymen. Henry, who expected in his present delicate situation 
to reap great advantages from the authority and popularity of Anselm, durst not insist on his demand. He only desired that the courtesy might be suspended, and that messengers might be sent to Rome in order to accommodate matters with the Pope, and obtain his confirmation of the laws and customs of England. There immediately occurred an important affair in which the king was obliged to have recourse to the authority of Anselm. Matilda, daughter of Malcolm III, king of Scotland, and niece to Edgar Atheling, had, on her father's death and the subsequent revolutions in the Scottish government, been brought to England and educated under her aunt Christina in the nunnery of Rumsey. This Princess Henry proposed to marry, and as she had worn the veil, though never taken the vows, doubt might arise concerning the lawfulness of the act, and it behooved him to be very careful not to shock in any particular the religious prejudices of his subjects. The affair was examined by Anselm in a council of the prelates and nobles, which was summoned at Lambreth. Matilda there proved that she had put on the veil not with a view of entering into a religious life, but merely in consequence of a custom familiar to the English ladies who protected their chastity from the brutal violence of the Normans by taking shelter under that habit which, amidst the horrible licentiousness of the times, was yet generally revered. The council, sensible that even a princess had otherwise no security for her honor, admitted this reason as valid. They pronounced that Matilda was still free to marry, and her espousals with Henry were celebrated by Anselm with great pomp and solemnity. No act of the king's reign rendered him equally popular with his English subjects and tended more to establish him on the throne. Though Matilda, during the life of her uncle and brothers, was not heir to the Saxon line, she was become very dear to the English on account of her connections with it, and that people who, before the conquest, had fallen into a kind of indifference towards their ancient royal family, had felt so severely the tyranny of the Normans that they reflected with extreme regret on their former liberty and hoped for a more equal and mild administration when the blood of their native princes should be mingled with that of their new sovereigns. But the policy and prudence of Henry, which, if time had been allowed for these virtues to produce their full effect, would have secured him possession of the crown, ran great hazard of being frustrated by the sudden appearance of Robert, who returned to Normandy about a month after the death of his brother William. He took possession without opposition of that duchy, and immediately made preparations for recovering England, of which, during his absence, he had, by Henry's intrigues, been so unjustly defrauded. The great fame in which he had acquired in the East forwarded his pretensions, and the Norman barons, 
sensible of the consequences, expressed the same discontent at the separation of the duchy and kingdom, which had appeared on the accession of William. Robert de Bellesme, Earl of Shrewsbury, and Arundel, William de Warrenne, Earl of Surrey, Arnulf de Montgomery, Walter Giffard, Robert de Pontefract, Robert de Malay, Evode de Grantismesnil, and many others of the principal nobility, invited Robert to make an attempt upon England, and promised on his landing to join him in all their forces. Even the seamen were affected with the general popularity of his name, and they carried over to him the greater part of a fleet which had been equipped to oppose his passage. Henry, in this extremity, began to be apprehensive for his life, as well as for his crown, and had recourse to the superstition of the people in order to oppose their sentiment of justice. He paid diligent court to Anselm, whose sanctity and wisdom he pretended to revere. He consulted him in all difficult emergencies, seemed to be governed by him in every measure, promised a strict regard to ecclesiastical privileges, professed a great attachment to Rome, and a resolution of persevering in an implicit obedience to the decrees of council and to the will of the sovereign pontiff. By these caresses and declarations he entirely gained the confidence of the primate, whose influence over the people and authority with the barons were of the utmost service to him in his present situation. Anselm scrupled not to assure the nobles of the king's sincerity in those professions which he made of avoiding the tyrannical and oppressive government of his father and brother. He even rode through the ranks of the army, recommended to the soldiers and defense of their prince, represented the duty of keeping their oaths of allegiance, and prognosticated to them the greatest happiness from the government of so wise and just a sovereign. By this expedient, joined to the influence of the earls of Warwick and Melent, of Roger Bigod, Richard de Redvers, and Robert Fitzhamon, powerful barons, who still adhered to the present government, the army was retained in the king's interest and marched with seeming union and firmness to oppose Robert, who had landed with his forces at Portsmouth. End of section 31. Recording by Tony Richardson.